The Sunday after Christmas is always a real challenge for a preacher. And there are several parts to this challenge. For one thing, it's the Sunday after Christmas. All the excitement is over. As you can see from our banners, the wise men and the shepherds have already headed home. I heard that was Bob Doak's idea to do that like that. I, I like that. The excitement's over. Now it's time to head home. The second problem is what the world calls Christmas is just too long these days. For an entire month, starting the day after Thanksgiving, it's all you hear on the radio. It's all you hear in Walmart, all you hear in the grocery stores. Our ears are constantly filled with great Christmas classics like Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Last Christmas I Gave You My Heart. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time, those meaningful songs. And why do they do that anyway? Does anybody really enjoy it? Do you walk in the grocery store and say, oh, they're playing Christmas songs? A whole month of it. That's eight and one-eighth percent of our lives is listening to Christmas music. I was going to mention some of my other pet peeves, but I'm getting tired of Christmas too, and I just don't want to go into it. But Christmas goes on for a long time, uh, too long maybe. But now, the good thing about all this is that there's lots of time and lots of opportunity to connect with lots of good and great and godly things, to reconnect with family and friends, to re-watch favorite movies, and to eat cookies and pies and eggnog, real eggnog, and apple cider, real apple cider, and, and gifts and, and time off from work, and all these are good and godly things. So what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. At the end of this long season, in which there are so many good and godly things to connect to, it's possible to lean back and sigh and think that, well, we had a good Christmas this year, without ever coming into contact with the real implications of what Christmas means, the real meaning of Christmas. And that's the challenge. I mean, it's possible to rehearse the historical details of the Christmas story as Luke and Matthew tell them to us, and, and to contemplate what they mean. It's possible to listen again like we did this morning to the majestic words of John as we're told that that little baby in the manger is God in the flesh. And even to thrill at it all, the wonder of it all, and still not to have thought about why. What does all this mean? And so this year, before we run out of the 12 days of Christmas this coming Thursday and uh, rush off into the church season of Epiphany and what the rest of the world calls the season of Valentine's Day, I'd like to take a few minutes and look at what the Apostle Paul makes of the Christmas story. When we think about the Christmas story, we might turn first to Luke chapter 2 or to Matthew or to John chapter 1. Um, but what does the Apostle Paul have to say about the Christmas story? And I want to focus my attention, although look broadly at the, at the epistle reading this morning, Galatians chapter 4. You might want to look at it in your pew Bible because I want to make sure you understand the context of some things that I say to you. I just want to reread two verses to you, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In these two verses, Paul gives us four phrases that tell us what happens at Christmas, and then two phrases that tell us why these things happen. And I want to unpack these two verses with you. When the fullness of time had come. That's a phrase which is rich in meaning, full of meaning itself. It tells us that God is the Lord of time and history, that God is in charge of time. God has a purpose and a plan for time and history. It tells us that God has made promises that must be fulfilled and that God has a plan that depends on the unfolding of time 
and that God's plan is moving towards a goal. When the conditions are just right, when the stage is just right, God's plan goes into effect. But this is not just any plan, but a very big plan. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That unfolding plan was for God to send forth his son. If you happen to be in, Sunday last, in church last Sunday, we ran the Lessons and Carol service and the Sunday morning service. A bit unusual for a Sunday morning, but I liked it. It outlined the unfolding of God's plan. It starts with the fall of humanity and then moves to the choice of Abraham and then the choice of David and then the choice of Mary. And as God's plan gets narrower and narrower, it starts off with all of humanity, then it works down to Abraham's family, then it works down to David's family, and then it works down to Mary. And then all of a sudden, when it gets to its narrowest point, it spreads out infinitively more than you can imagine. The angel says, I bring you good news. It's good news to all people. Everybody in the world is now touched. God's plan comes down to one moment in time, and then it covers the entire universe. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Notice the son is sent forth to be born. The son is not made the son at his birth. He's not adopted as the son. The son is eternal, and he's outside of time, and he's sent. That's exactly what John told us in our gospel reading. The word becomes flesh. That's why later in John's gospel, Jesus can pray this prayer in John chapter 17 to his father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this belief that the Son of God existed before his birth, that the Messiah had somehow existed before even his birth, is not something that was cooked up in the first century and as a result of Greek philosophy. It's actually what's prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophet Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Ju- to be numbered among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's been coming from ancient times. He'll be born, but he's been coming from ancient days. The word becomes flesh. And this is exactly what Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Born of a woman. The Greek phrase here, and it's not unique to Paul or anything, it's just the Greek way of putting it. Literally in Greek, that phrase that we translate born of a woman uh, literally says born out of a woman. That's a pretty graphic description. Born out of a woman. And when you think about it, that's kind of how babies are born. Out of a woman. Yeah, that's how they do it. And that kind of earthy phrase... Um, reminds us of the physical nature of being conceived and developing and then being born. The word doesn't zing, show up as flesh, it becomes flesh. Imagine that the divine, eternal word of God spends nine months in the womb, developing and growing. Jesus takes on full humanity. It's not like a wave of a magic wand and all of a sudden there's baby Jesus. He spends nine months in the womb developing, becoming human, Being a human. He doesn't simply assume a human body, but he is human. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 
There's more to this than just an idea about time and history and about God being in control of time. There's more than just an idea about the eternal divine personhood of Jesus. There's more here than just recounting the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became a human being. There's more going on here than dry doctrine. What this tells us is that God loves us. Because the entire purpose is to restore humanity to a proper relationship with God. The whole story of the baby in the manger is about restoring humanity to God. And why? Why does God do that? Did God have any sense of obligation to restore our relationship? We rebelled against God and broke our world. Anybody here blame God if God just walked off and did something else? God had no sense of obligation to us. The only reason the whole thing comes into play at all is because of God's love. And think about it, it's the greatest manifestation of love possible. You see, it's one thing to be staggered by the thought of an infinite God entering finite space and time. To be bewildered even at thinking of the pre-existing second person of the Trinity being born in a dirty stable. Of the divine word of God becoming flesh. But then ask yourself, well, why did this happen? Why did God the Father send forth his Son? Because he loved us. Why did infinity become finite? Because God loves us. Is there any greater manifestation of love than all of infinity and eternity being bound up in space and time just for love? And not even love for his friends, but love for his enemies. Love for us who had rejected God's love, who'd rebelled against his laws. If you can just manage to get your head around the idea of God becoming flesh and how incredibly stunning that is, here's more. It all happened because God loves us. Paul goes on. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus is born under the law. This means two different things. First, and maybe most obviously, he's born a Jew. He's born under Hebrew law. He's born to a family who's required and expected to keep the law. And in fact, he's born to be the one the law and the prophets had all pointed to, the Messiah of the Hebrew people. But there's more here than just the Hebrew law. In the psalm we read for today, you heard that kind of bragging about the law. God's given us these special laws, the psalmist writes. He gave us these special laws. The Gentiles don't know about God's special laws. But the Gentiles know about God's general laws. Everyone has an obligation to God. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve weren't Jewish, but they're still obligated to follow God's laws. All of us are obligated to follow God's laws. And Jesus did. And the rest of us haven't. The prophet Isaiah put it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. 
You may remember what comes next. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3. Actually, just before our reading, in the passage beginning at verse 10, he he speaks about the curse of the law. All of us are under God's laws. We've all broken God's laws and therefore we're cursed by the laws. But then in verse 13, Christ who keeps the law redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ who lived a life avoiding that curse takes on that curse voluntarily for us. So that in Christ Jesus, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That story that starts off with Abraham applies to everybody, all of humanity. Why was this baby born to redeem humanity, to pay the penalty for our sinful rebellion? And this is the first part of what Paul is getting at in that very intriguing sentence in the passage we did read, verse 28 of chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, let's start with neither Jew nor Greek. By destroying the curse of the law, there's now no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Those old categories don't matter anymore to God the Father. Why? Because Jesus is born the curse of both Jew and Gentile. The next part, there's neither slave nor free. For those in Christ, there's no distinction between slavery and freedom because from God's perspective, we've all been enslaved to sin. From a human perspective, of course, we draw strict divisions there. But from God's division, from God's perspective, there is no distinction. We've all been slaves to sin. That's what Paul says in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law that was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. Why? Because we've been redeemed from our sins. And to be redeemed from our sins is wonderful, but it gets even better. And this brings us to the third part. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And in chapter 4, verse 4, the phrase I've been focused on, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why does Paul emphasize that in God's perspective, whatever our human eyes tell us, from God's perspective, we receive adoption as sons? When John, who's making a very similar point in John chapter 1, the passage we read said, those who believe in, in, uh, who believe in Jesus' name have the right to be children of God. John uses the Greek word technon, which means child. Paul's very careful here to use the Greek word eos, which means son. You are all sons of God. Why is that so significant and so emphasized? 
Well, it sounds odd to us, doesn't it? But in ancient Mediterranean cultures, the people that Paul comes out of and the people that Paul's writing to, daughters don't have an inheritance. Only sons can inherit. Daughters have a portion of the family property attached to them, but it's a dowry. On marriage, that property is passed to the husband, and the daughter never touches, never owns the property. Only sons can inherit. But don't get mad at me about it. It wasn't my rule. I'm just telling you that's what the rule was. Only sons can inherit. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The context there is right in the context of inheritance. Chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Being redeemed from sin is really good. But being made a full part of God's family is even better. With a legal status that means I'm inheriting what God has for me. What God has for me doesn't just pass from me from God to somebody else, but it goes directly to me. What inheritance Jesus has as God's son, we have. Have you ever thought of that? What it means to be an heir of God? I sure hope you have. We talk about it every Sunday in the communion service. After receiving the body and blood of Christ, we, we thank God for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. What's that mean to you to be an heir of God's eternal kingdom? Well, it's made possible because of what Jesus does. That's what's really going on in that stable on Christmas night. The plan goes into effect. That means that we can be full members of God's family and inherit the kingdom God wants us to have. And if you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and that Jesus died the death you should have died and that Jesus rose to live on a level of existence that God always intended you to live on, designed you to live on, deeply desires you to live on, who sent his son to be born of a woman to live under the law so that you could live in that existence with God, then you can see God's glory and live forever. That's what's going on at Christmas time. Merry Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.